Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Hi, I'm Sharad Kutin. Today marks one of the high points of the Chinese New Year festive season, the reunion dinner. For some, it's a time of mixed emotions. So we speak to a mental health clinician and family therapist to understand family dynamics and why it could be emotionally challenging for some. Let us know what you think. Uh, do family reunions fill you with joy or anxiety? How do you cope? You can call 7733-2900, tweet us at BFM Radio or send us a voice note or a WhatsApp at our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. It's uh, 6.08. Uh, this is uh, Inside Story. I'm Sharad Kutin. You know, one of the reasons we're talking about, um, you know, how you feel uh, at reunions, reunion dinners, uh, whether it's Chinese or otherwise, where families are involved, what is your general sort of uh, apprehension? I mean, do you go, or, or anticipation, do you go in anticipating a great time, lots of laughter, hugs, and, you know, warmth of family, or do you go in dreading the kind of questions that are going to be asked of you, where you are in life, your marital status, if you're married, how the marriage is going, if you haven't had a child, if you're having a child? So many things come up, right? So, and this comes on the back, I think, of recent discussions we've had here on the Evening Edition uh, about the way people think and feel about reunions. In fact, we, we talked about the roles people think they have at family reunions. Are they the bridge builder? Are they the person that sings quietly to the corner and hopes they don't get uh, noticed? Are you the kind of person who, you know, is the entertainer? Because that's also a way of building bridges or calming, afraid uh, tempers. And, and so what kind of person personality do you have in the context of a family reunion? Uh, we also talked about um, what people like and dislike about festive seasons. And, you know, one of the things that does come out quite often, um, perhaps this is, you know, deeply buried in our memories of uh as children and how we were treated and family, you know, gatherings that we had to go to that we didn't like or getting pot, prodded and kissed and hugged with people that we didn't actually want to get hugged and kissed by, partly because we hadn't seen them for months or years. And so, you know, there is a bit of the trauma, I think, of, of that that comes into play. Uh, but also just, you know, especially I think if you're a teenager, you start to the family bonds start to loosen and you develop all kinds of other interests and other people become more interesting, your friends in particular. So yeah, so family reunions coming together, it's been a topic that we've been discussing the last week or so. So let us know, uh, do family reunions fill you with joy or anxiety? Perhaps a mix of both. And how do you cope? You can call us double seven double three two nine hundred. You can tweet us at BFM Radio, send us a voice note or a WhatsApp at 018-789-8899. After this, we'll be speaking to David Hong. He's the founding director of Andolfi Family Therapy Center. He's going to help us uh, think through the question of reunions and your feelings about them. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Bole for Malaysia. Ha. BFM 89.9, the business station. 
It's 6.12. Uh, you're listening to Inside Story. I'm Sharad Kutin. We're talking about reunion dinners because of course, tonight is the big moment, I think, when families, Chinese families get together because it is Chinese New Year, the eve of Chinese New Year. Uh, and it's a major, I think, uh, not just a, a kind of social gathering, but it's also an emotional one and one that perhaps comes with some fraught emotions. Now, to help us think through those emotions, we have David Hong. He's the founder Director of Andolfi Family Therapy Center. Uh, welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, to all the Chinese people in Malaysia. Yeah, to you. And you are in Sydney, I understand, and must be well into reunion dinner time there. Uh, look, let's just get a sense of you first, David. I understand you moved to Australia after some years gr- growing up in Malaysia. How different or similar is uh, our Chinese New Year celebrations between our two countries? Well, obviously, uh, Chinese New Year in Australia is a lot more low-key compared to Chinese New Year in the in the Asian country like Singapore and Malaysia and all that. So the Chinese New Year in Australia tend to be focused in the city, in Chinatown. The, the, the positive things about what's happening in Australia is that there's a lot of Chinatown sprouting out everywhere. Uh, so, so there's a lot of celebration. The restaurants are all geared for the dragon dance and all, all these are happening. Uh, unfortunately for myself, I've never quite subscribed to the to the festivities, you know. <laughs> the the main thing that I subscribe to is the family reunion dinner, which is actually tomorrow. So tomorrow I'll be meeting my three girls, uh, my three adult daughters, my my grandchildren and their partners. So uh, that's been a, a family ritual, really. Uh, so so family reunion dinner is really a ritual. It's a time for gathering. And food is a good thing, you know. So, David, I, it's interesting. I think we're of the same vintage, really. And you've seen perhaps, uh, you know, uh, Chinese New Year as a whole, or, um, you know, even reunion dinners transformed over the last, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years of your life. Um, what have you observed in terms of the way in which uh, families, you know, expect to communicate with each other or manage conflict in, you know, in, in such a situation? Right. I think... Um What's happening in the 21st century, uh, if you look at technology, for example, you know, iPad, mobile phone, and all those things is that it becomes a, becomes a standard practice really in, in all cultures, irrespective. Uh, so if you go to uh, Yam Cha in Chinatown or anywhere in Australia, you see that everybody pick up their mobile phones, they don't talk as a family, they just go focus on their mobile phone. So so the the ironical part of it, technology is supposed to help us to be more 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 able to communicate with us, but at another level it's actually uh, making it worse. How often now uh, children and adolescents stay in their bedroom as for as long as they can. So the kind of the withdrawal of ad children and adolescents into their bedrooms are so common. And so it's just uh, really a sad predicament in terms of where technology has 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 uh, contributed to uh, in fact less communication. But whenever I'm sometimes when I do my therapy, and the and the child will SMS the mother downstairs, 
by SMS. So, so in a way, it's a bit of a joke what uh, technology has contributed, you know? Well, you know, perhaps uh, young people are communicating with those they want to communicate with and not being forced uh, to communicate with those they don't want. And I want to touch on that because I, I wonder if you can cast your mind back, David, to when you were growing up, uh, when, in fact, uh, like you and me, we didn't have those mobile devices. There was actually nowhere to run to. Uh, you couldn't hide from your relatives. An uncle or an aunt was intrusive or whatever. How did right. you experience that? Was that traumatic for you, as some people think uh, those kind of moments are? Or did you gladly embrace them? Well, if, if I look at me growing up in the 70s, I was, you know, a young man. I live in a village of 108 houses. Uh, the whole village knows me. So when I'm naughty, I get the cane from my mother, you know, when I do the wrong thing. So we can, So I was raised by the village. So there's a lot of contact. There's a lot of love and responsibility from the, from the community in terms of how I was raised, for example. So... So I, I think I miss, I think people of today will miss those uh, opportunities, you know. So that's really one of the one of the biggest things that I felt. Uh, in terms of, then I went to London and I did nursing in London. And I would send a letter home and it would take six weeks before I get a letter back. So technology, on the other hand, has been exceptionally efficient. And so we can now talk to each other, we can see each other, which is fantastic. But now it's like become second nature now. So it's so kind of like a big development, you know. Uh, when I went back to Malaysia, I've been going back to Malaysia since 2015. And that's partly to connect with my biological mother. And partly I wanted to see my biological mother more. And I, I just noticed that such a, even Malaysia is such a drastic change now. If you look at Malaysia today, uh, divorce has gone to the roof. A uh, single mother by choice is not uncommon. Gay and couples are not uncommon now, you know. So there's a lot of massive changes. However, at another level, three generations in one living in one family, particularly with Chinese family, is still happening. Then you can appreciate some of the some of the stress and tension that goes with that, you know. David, I want to ask you, as a professional, somebody who works in therapy and dealing with people's problems, is, that, is this an issue, the tensions that come or the anxieties that come from family relationships, and especially at moments like uh, reunion uh, dinners, is that something that people present to you as a problem they want to work through? Is that in your work? Well, I see lots of family in conflict. Uh, so, so that's really my my bread and butter for the last uh, thirty odd years, working with the whole family and working with couple relationship. So, uh, sure, I think for sure that's happening. And then the other part that is kind of like happening is that the the impact of that onto the onto the person, people are more anxiety based, and so 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 if there are conflicts in the family. It can be very anxiety-provoking, very, very stressful. People might deliberately avoid avoid family arrangement or family reunions, for example. And on top of that, if the anger, if the anger comes from upstairs, which means that if anger comes from multi-generational, so I like to work with three generations in the family system. 
So if there's if there's anger or conflict unresolved upstairs with the with the with the parents and the grandparents, in my experience, it's not it's not uncommon to get transmitted down to the lower generation. And what tells me then is that young people have not learned how to resolve the conflict because their parents are still at war. The parents are still at war with the grandparents. So, if, so, so when you have a reunion, it brings back all those unhappiness, you know. So that can happen. So families are at war. That's why it's so difficult, so challenging, uh, especially in reunion where you kind of like, in a way, have an expectation to attend because of the pressure from, from, from the values from your parents and all that, you know, about about reunion and things like that. But it can be exceptionally a stressful period. On precisely that point, I want to ask you about the, as it were, the idea of an Asian family, right? The ideal Asian family, the one, whether it's Chinese, Malay, Indian, whatever it is, uh, of uh, a respect for, you know, elders, of a kind of decorum when it comes to dealing with elders or even younger people, you know, if you're older, uh, are against the reality, right? And so... How th- how has that changed? Uh, are, did in the past did people keep and try to conform as much to the ideal and you know as they could? And is it today that people are actually less committed to those ideals and want to or have adopted a much more individualistic approach to life? I think it's it's, it's definitely for, for sure that we've moved towards more individualistic because because partly because of the influence of technology. So if you look at technology in the 21st century, within five minutes, what happened in US or the, or the, or the Western world, the young people in Malaysia are exposed to all those issues, you know? So that's certainly happening. So it's not by accident, this is a problem, you know? So I think that is definitely a, 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 a concern uh, of what's happening. And then when you talk about elders, right? you talk about honoring the elders, then it's not also not uncommon that many, many uh, in Asian society or Chinese family, not uncommon that the, that the children continue to honor and respect their elders. That's what they call the filial piety, yeah? The filial piety or respect your elders and all that. <clears throat> I have a different take on respect, partly because I've been, I'm now 69 years old, I have been through life. And I, I, I was grow, I was, I was, I was raised to respect elders. Doesn't matter whether they do right or wrong to you. You respect them, irrespective. So I was raised to respect them. But this has become a struggle in my in my life as a therapist. How 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 and the and the struggle was that how, how is it possible for you to respect somebody when they do the wrong thing by you? And I can remember, I have an uncle that called me, you're stupid, stupid, stupid. So the vocabulary is that I'm not much good. Then I have an auntie that, that did the same thing. And I can remember how I become so angry. And I just exploded one, one day. And, and my auntie and my uncle stopped saying those things that put me down. Right? And guess what? I got a caning from my mother for standing up for myself. So today, as a as a sixty nine year old man and as a therapist, I will work on how to earn respect. 
Because when you earn respect, it becomes a very powerful attribute. You know, it becomes very powerful. People listen to you. People respect you. So that has been something that that is in my head for a long, long time. You know, David, I want to ask you about that because you know often uh, respect, especially you know, cast in those traditional terms, was a one-way street. It was younger people respecting older people. It, you know, a, you know, can respect, should respect, will respect ever be a two-way street in a family um, between generations? Uh, well, when you talk about that, then obviously you have to think about how open is this family in how they communicate to each other about their needs. I think that is the key underneath all that. So it's how open the family communicates their needs. And what are the values that the parents have on the children about how they teach their children about respect, you know. So I think it's 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 a it's a, it's a two way traffic. I don't think that you can just become respectful. I think it has to be uh it has to be from the from the generation above that also like to have open communication, that values uh that values young people's needs and all that as well, you know. But is that something you think you in particular have to deal with because you you work and live in Australia, that Malaysia might not be quite at the same place uh, in terms of uh, awareness, in terms of you know, emotional capacity that you might be seeing in your clients. Okay, let me share you a story. Eh? I am in Flangin and I'm in Malaysia for the last nine years uh, advocating family therapy as a treatment modality. Yeah, So we work with the whole family. And through the through those period of time, I've been seeing families in Malaysia. So from my influence of being a westernized uh, therapist to having a background in Asian culture and to respect that, I saw a young man who was 12 years old and uh, he was a distressed young man. And his love was to be an artist. He was very good, very talented artist. But the parents couldn't respect his needs as, as a young man for his love and passion for art. So the parents have never subscribed to encouraging him about art. And I think it's also in the Malaysian society, it's an inherent bias towards uh, being a lawyer, a doctor, and as an, an accountant, because that brings the bacon in and brings the, brings the dollars in and all that. And perhaps back in the early days, of the 50s, that, has, that is quite a strong value system because money is something that we value and we learn how to work hard for. And so this father became a dream stealer and, so the son, and stole the son's dream of wanting to be an artist. And through the therapy, the, the, I realized that the father's dream of wanting to be an artist was also stolen by his own father. So this father has learned how to steal dreams because that's how his father teach him. And this young man was distressed and loved art and, and, the, and the mother started to tear as well. And it was not until I did the therapy did the father rise to a challenge, bought him nice art paper, respect his wishes to be following the passion for art, you know? And I think he became a happier child and his quality of his art was so good. You know, and the father has a very, obviously, a very social social mouth and was able to convince the local condominium 
for the sun to paint a wall mural. I mean, you're talking a wall mural, it's about 20 or 30 feet big. It's not like some small art paper. And the quality of the art was so good. And so who is to say that he's never going to be successful as an artist, you know? So he has to find his way and learn that, you know? So I'm not sure that answers your question. Though. Well, you know, it does. And I actually want to get back to you uh, after the break uh, with the question about what was the breakthrough moment for the father? How did he deal with his disappointment and and transform that into something like acceptance for his son? Right. So we're going to do that after the news. Uh, we are talking with uh, David uh, Hong, who is the founding director of Andolfi Family Therapy Center. He's based in Sydney. Uh, we're discussing family reunions, whether they fill you with joy and anxiety, or how do you cope with them? You can call us, double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send us a voice note or WhatsApp at uh, 018-789-8899, or tweet us at BFM Radio. Become fabulous millionaires. BFM 89.9. It's 6.37. You're listening to Inside Story. I'm Sherrod Kutin. We're talking about reunions, families, uh, the dynamics within them, and perhaps the chance for healing, right? If that is, um, there is an opportunity. Will that come with the sharing of food or will it have to come through family therapy? So the person who's going to help us with that is David Hong, founding director of Adolfi Family Therapy Centre. Before I go to David, I do want to remind you that you can join this conversation. Uh, the question to you is, do family reunions fill you with joy or anxiety? How do you cope? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Tweet us at BFM Radio or send us a voice note or a WhatsApp at our number 018-789-8899. David, I, I did want to, and now that you can see me on cam, you'll know that I have as much hair as you do. Uh, um, you know, I want to ask you, uh, you know, to kind of wrap up that story that you were telling us, uh, that 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 moment of transformation is what you described. But how difficult was it to get there? How did you get uh, the father to realize that he himself had had his dreams stolen for him and that he needed to transform his relationship to his son? Okay. One, one of the things to appreciate that when you do therapy, inside the therapist's, inside the therapist's head is also about what questions that you can ask? What are the difficult questions that you can ask that will transform therapy? And when you ask the right question, it opens up all possibilities. And when I ask those questions, the, the father will probably have never considered that his own father was a dream stealer. So when I make that explicit, the mother start to tear that his own husband has missed the opportunity of become who he wants to become. But to cut a long story short, this boy discovered through the own process of himself that he never really pursued art forever. This was like 12 years ago when I, when I saw this family. And he chose to, uh, chose to pursue a career of hotel management. So we, it's not our job to tell a child what they want to do. It's through their own process they discover what they want to pursue, you know? So, so I always uh, felt that I like to build dreams with young people. 
Okay, Fa fascinating. I, I do want to come back to maybe, you know, the thing that's uh, top uh, of mind when people think of reunion dinners, and, and uh, we were talking about this last couple of days, really, what people disliked about festivities. And, you know, for a lot of children, it's being dragged from, you know, relative's house to relative's house, um, having to endure intrusive questions, you know, unsolicited advice, you know, uh, you know unwanted confrontation, uh, maybe even compassion comparisons that are hurtful, right? What would you say to somebody who perhaps doesn't have a choice not to attend these things? How would you suggest they approach uh, all these manner of uh, communications that are going to come at them at a family reunion? Not, not only that, how often the children are compared among their cousins for their academic pursuits and that is very stressful, especially some cousins are not so academically inclined. So it's very stressful. So how do you how do you support or help the young people to manage this? Okay, it's very interestingly enough, uh, Sarat, uh, back about 10 or 15 years ago, I was asked to speak to uh, reachout.com, which, which is a website for adolescents with mental health issues. And the topic was, how do I help families to survive Christmas reunion? <laughs> so, so today's topic is not too dissimilar, you know? So one of the things I suppose you can do is to, uh, number one, if it's too stressful, do the family have an exit plan? That's number one. You so, mean like literally leave the dinner party? Yeah, leave the dinner party, have an exit plan that is sensible, that's respectful, rather than, hey, well, I'm just going to go, right? Have a clear exit plan. I think that's important. And then at the same time, if you go to any family event, there must be some uncle or auntie. They are positive role models that the young people subscribe to. Surround them around those uncles and aunties, you know? That will be the second one. The third one is that is to help the young people to develop skills to manage those, those situations where they feel uh, pressure. How to help them to say no in a nice way. You know, I think it's about how do you teach not just young people, families, adults, uh, skills in mediation, skills in conflict resolution, because there's so many skills that one, one can learn from, from dealing with family of origin issues, you know? So those are important. The, the thing about festive gathering as a good opportunity as well to resolve issue of conflict because it's a natural issue of face saving. <laughs> so it's, they're not purposely ring somebody up and say, let's sort it out. Through the process of a, a festive season and if people are open to resolve conflict, it can be a very important area of, of saving face, you know? So I think those are important. Set some boundaries is very important. Where are the no-go zone? What is non-negotiable in your mind? And how can you get transmitted across to those people that are much likely to be intrusive? How to say no in a nice way? Respectful of each other, <clears throat> I think that's important. <clears throat> I do want to jump in there because I think we've all had these experiences, right? I mean, it's not uh, something that's unique to people who are, you know, 
uh, very sensitive, hypersensitive about these issues or easily uh, triggered or traumatized. It, it's actually all our lives that we've had to do this. Uh, and I've seen, you know, David, people, cousins of mine use humor to disarm the most intrusive, uh, obnoxious, overbearing relative in the room. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, but I, I wonder, is this something that you can do i mean you can can you teach somebody how to cope with that situation if they don't have uh, the capacity or do we all have the capacity to manage these situations okay sometimes uh, as a therapist i like to use metaphor in therapy i like to use metaphor like water of a duck's feather it's oh, one example oh, water of a duck's back that kind yeah, of thing water, yeah water of a duck's back for example I sometimes teach them how to visualize themselves as a tortoise or turtle. And I will demonstrate that the turtle had a hard shell and doesn't matter what people say to them, it gets bounced off. And that when things get tough, a turtle can sneak the head in, for example. So the use of metaphor in therapy can be a very powerful way to help young people to cope, uh, things like that. So, yeah. Do you but see... I think mm, sorry, please go on. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so I was wondering if you see something, because you said you've been coming back here to the last decade or so and watching and dealing, working with uh, Malaysian families and trying to, uh, as you said, promote uh, the idea of family therapy. Do you see an increasing openness to this? And or uh, what are the barriers if they do exist? Okay, one, one of the things, one of the observations I find in the last nine or ten years going back to Malaysia was that the Malaysian families are so open to family therapy. I was, I was nicely surprised. Not just family, most of the time in therapy, it's always the mother that bring the children to therapy. The father generally escape therapy. What I was quite interesting was that when you teach your students how to invite families to therapy, how to invite absent fathers to therapy, that carries a bit of weight in terms of how fathers can be good guides for their children, you know. I was, I was taught by a very famous uh, therapist, uh, Professor Mauricio Andolfi. That's how Andolfi Family Therapy Center was named in honor of his work and contribution to family therapy. He said, therapists have a token gestures of father. They think fathers. They don't think fathers. So they invite fathers in a way that perhaps are not so not so focused. So when you have a focused approach to inviting fathers to therapy, never surprised that they keep turning up. The other part of my work, Sharad, that you may not be aware of is that I see family life in consultation in front of the students. And this is in front of maybe 10 or 15 students. Even then, Families come to therapy. It's how you, how you promote what you're doing in therapy that makes sense, you know? So the fact that I conduct therapy in front of the students and the students can learn from how I conduct therapy and the father or the parents and the children can see it's nothing so scary about therapy. It can be so, so powerful. And at the end, for, for, at the, end for, the, for the 10 or 15 students to be present, to be able to to be able to uh, to kind of like pinpoint some of the strong some of the positive qualities of what come out in therapy, 
is so is so powerful, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, David, because no, some people believe uh, that food <laughs> and the sharing of food is a form of therapy and maybe one that predates, you know, more modern techniques of uh, uh, methodologies of therapy. Uh, what would you say? Because we, I want to kind of wrap this conversation up by by making a more positive gesture towards the reunion dinner uh, that, you know, many Malaysians are rushing to. Uh, can sharing of food actually be a, a process of healing how can we imagine a reunion dinner being a positive uh, kind of moment in your life of course i think when you talk about food food is very symbolic food is about nurturing food is about care and food is about love and i go back to history where i was working in australia and the whole family will come into therapy for four to six weeks, living in residence. And we will have mothers that are <clears throat> that don't have a lot of emotional uh, capacity to meet the needs of their own children. But you could see that they pile the food up on the plate so much. So it's a way of them showing love to their children, you know. So I can never I can never appreciate so much that what food can contribute in terms of therapy. So that's one thing. Food is also a way of gathering. It's a form of gathering. So it's a good distraction. And you can perhaps, in a good atmosphere of fun, some difficult things can be shared. I think that's what I think, the, what, why food is so important in, in reunions, you know? Well, thank you very much, David, uh, for a fascinating discussion and look into um, what families and the opportunities I think that, you know, the people who work in your field uh, give to families to heal if there are problems within it and maybe achieve some sort of clarity uh, for themselves. So uh, thanks again for joining us, uh, Sinyan Kwila, to you there in, in Sydney. Thank you for the opportunity and I'll catch you guys. Bye. That was David Hong, the director of Andolfi Family Therapy Centre. We're talking about reunion dinner. We're talking about, you know, the anxiety or the joy of coming together, especially with loved ones, family, uh, the people that you love uh, to meet, and the people that you perhaps would rather avoid, but you are kind of forced into it because of the nature and structure of something like a family reunion. So tell us, uh, does, uh, do family reunions fill you with joy or anxiety and how do you cope? You can call 7733-2900. You can send us a voice note or a WhatsApp uh, at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.